1: Here at the Guardian, we love podcasts.
0: Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Here, Here, Here—that's here as in hearing, and here as in where—comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Here newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The
1: Guardian.
0: Hello, this is Brexit Means, the Guardian's regular dive into the ever murkier waters of Brexit. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at what amounts to the first outline of what the future relationship between the EU and the UK might look like, as far, that is, as the EU is concerned. The bloc last week published its draft guidelines on the final trade deal, and although broadly as expected, they didn't make happy reading for the UK... The six pages of the draft sketched out a bare-bones free trade agreement that Donald Tusk once again stressed was all that could concretely be offered to the UK because of its by now familiar red lines on free movement, EU budget contributions and the European Court of Justice. After Theresa May's Mansion House speech, calling for a deep and ambitious trade deal based on mutual recognition of standards and managed divergence of regulations after Brexit, plus, of course, as friction trade as possible, the European Council president was characteristically pointed. He said it was simply not in the bloc's interests to give way to what he called the prime minister's pick-and-mix approach and that, unlike Theresa May, it was not the EU's overriding objective to show British voters that Brexit was bang-on the right choice and would be a rip-roaring success. He didn't use exactly those words, of course, but that was the drift. So, with me to look at the outline of the proposed deal and the UK's response to it in a bit more detail are The Guardian's Brexit editor, Dan Roberts, and Brussels correspondent, Jennifer Rankin. Welcome, both. Hello. Um, Hello. Hi. Uh, Jennifer, let's start um, just very briefly before we sort of get into the weeds of this. um, What's the status of the document? What exactly does it represent? How far are the 27 behind it?
1: Well, the key word is, is draft. And this document, as you said, still has to be agreed by the 27 member states. And it's currently going through that process now, although it, it is actually happening rather quickly. So if we think back, this document came out last Wednesday and it's due to be signed off by EU leaders at the end of next week. So altogether that's around two and a half weeks to agree a text, which in EU terms is is barely any time at all when you think about the normal rather slow and stately pace of lawmaking. So so you you do get murmurings from some diplomats that this is all happening very quickly, that mm. they don't always have time to discuss these documents. And I think that's one reason why we can expect it won't change very much by and large there is there is consensus behind this approach, and I think also the fact that the document is is fairly general and and leaves lots of room for things to develop it even has a what's known as the evolution clause which is a, a, a clause that states you know the EU can change its approach if the British government changes its mind on its red lines. Right. So the fact that we have that clause in there and the, the rather general tone of the of, and approach of the document means that I think it's very likely it will be agreed very quickly. And certainly probably signing it off next week at, at the EU summit will be a, a formality.
0: Right. OK, so we can take it pretty much as read, uh, at least as, as you know, as far as it being the, the sort of the EU 27s position. Well, well, let's look at it, um, the document itself in, in a bit more detail and the, the key points. Um, first of those, I guess, is the fact and the you know, most obvious is that this is quite simply, a limited free trade agreement that is going to offer, proposes offering tariff free trade in goods. But the trade off for that, Dan, is only if the UK is prepared to maintain existing EU access to its fisheries. Now, do you think that was expected? That's surely got to be a bit of a blow to people like Michael Gove, who, who you know, who promised that uh, you know the UK would be taking back control
2: of its waters. Uh, it, it caught me slightly by surprise, but I guess with hindsight, it was only a question of time before fish returns. <laughs> to all of this swam um, back into. The it debate. is one of those rare issues where things are pretty black and white. The UK currently gets a really bad deal on its fishing uh, waters as a result of EU membership. Um, we got legged over when we joined <laughs> the EU and um, uh, it's been one of the few bright spots for Brexiteers where they can wholeheartedly point to the benefits of freedom and escaping it. The catch is that the catch we, we, we get <laughs> in the waters, as it <laughs> yeah. were, um, needs a market and the market is largely European. We have a funny situation in this country where the fish that we, we catch in our waters are generally not ones we eat anymore. Mm. Um, so we import a lot of fish and we export a lot of fish and we generally... Generally, it all works as long as there's no no borders. I think as a uh, Norwegian politician once said, "There's nothing, nothing is in a hurry quite like a lorry full of fish stuck at a border post." <laughs> yeah. It's uh, these things only work when they're frictionless. Yeah. So um, it was only a question of time before the EU played their fish card, and I think that it's interesting that they've chosen to do it now. Uh, and in some respects, there's a logic to it because what they've effected, what they've said is, if you want free mm. goods, a free trade agreement has got to include mm. agriculture and and fishing. So if you want to sell into our market, you've got to be able to give us mm what we get mm. in return, which is access to your waters.
0: And how is that likely to go down, do you think? L- with uh...
2: Like a lorry full <laughs> of rotten fish. <laughs> it's, uh, it's yet another great big obstacle in the way of swift agreement on this. I think... Politically, it's a bit like Northern Ireland. It's one of those very tricky totemic issues that is going to cause the politicians a huge amount of headache. Mm. But in the long run, the broader economic stakes are elsewhere. And I think in this case it's actually about financial services in the city right. which is missing from this agreement. Exactly. Um, well, well we took the exactly. we'll get to
0: Yeah, this. just going to come onto that precisely. Yeah, Jennifer, um let's let's move on to services because it you know that there, there there is some provision for services in this deal, isn't there? Uh, But basically, it's nothing more than what's currently on offer to sort of non-EU countries like Canada. And there's precious little, if anything at all, on financial services that are obviously such a big part of the UK economy. Now, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has already conceded that financial services, passporting rights are going to have to go along with Brexit. But, you know, are are there misgivings among the EU 27 that they're going to have to offer a little bit more eventually? than a kind of a straight sort of Canada dry deal for for services?
1: I think that could surface in time, but we haven't really seen a great deal of evidence of it so far. Although it is worth noting that as Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, was outlining these guidelines last week, he was at a press conference in Luxembourg and alongside him, was the Luxembourg prime minister, who, who did express at least some, some more sort of cautious language that he that the UK was very important and services were very important, but he didn't go beyond that. But we do know for countries uh, such as Luxembourg that services is a, is a key issue. They're very worried about shutting out the city of London completely and mm. the, the knock-on cost implications for the rest of the EU of doing that. But nonetheless, there hasn't been a, a debate yet among the EU27 about how to handle services with the UK and what's outlined in this draft document I think most will sign up to simply because it is it is rather broad even though it is uh, a very basically as you say it's a, a free trade agreement it's what's been offered to Canada and EU diplomats don't seeing it going any further than that mm. for now but nonetheless I think there's a huge gap in expectations between the UK and the EU on this. I think this, this will obviously be a, a key area where both sides will clash in the negotiations mm. and you have the UK actually looking at this with a much more sort of glass half full point of view or maybe you have to look at it with a glass half full point of view if you're, if you're a British civil servant but they would say well in fact the EU hasn't ruled anything out um, they may not have mentioned financial services but that's a good thing and we can build on this document whereas the EU side are saying well, this is, this is our starting offer and we don't expect to go much beyond this. So I think it, there's still a lot to to play for in the negotiations, but we can expect the EU will be very tough in, in defending what they would see as the integrity of the single market and not allowing the UK to cherry pick the best parts out right. of that.
0: Yeah, because Dan, Phil Hammond, the Chancellor, gave a speech almost a matter of minutes actually after these guidelines were published in which he said quite clearly that the UK could well reject a deal that didn't include financial services, because he said it it, it wouldn't be what he called either fair or balanced. How hard is Britain going to push for that? And is that a line that you think it can hold?
2: Well, I think it's a question of how hard Britain can push. I have a lot of sympathy for Hammond's position on this. I think the the fair thing would be to include financial services. If anything, it's the EU that is cherry-picking at the moment by saying we want a trade deal, but only for bits of trade that we've got a surplus with you <laughs> yeah. and the stuff that yeah. you've got a surplus with us. No, that doesn't come under the remit of a, you know. Mm. Um, actually, the direction of trade deals is increasingly towards financial services. Okay, it's a bit more of a stretch, but there was a financial services element to to CETA, there are attempts to strike mutual recognition agreements mm. with the U.S. and with Singapore. It's not it's not beyond the realms of possibility to say, well, Britain is much more advanced down that route because we've already got total alignment. You know, in a in a perfectly sane, non political world, one would expect it financial services feasible. to be yeah. in that. Mm. The truth is that we're not in the same world, and it is very political. Mm. And they've got us over a barrel. I mean, I think this is the. I, I really feel this is the most stark example yet of the EU playing. Very hardball um you know the if you add up the, the events of the last few weeks um flushing out the, the island problem in yep. the most politically painful way possible holding fish to ransom effectively <laughs> as we were just talking about and and now saying look the city gets it come what may which at the, at the end of the day let's not beat around the bush this is a protectionist driven impulse this is about paris and frankfurt saying mm. no well actually we'd quite like a little bit of that, that business that yep. business back you know yep. why should we help the city so uh, you know this is let's not delude ourselves the eu is being deeply unfair, but that's life. Mm. We don't have leverage in this. Yeah. And that's the problem. And I think that's what's really coming home to bite is how limited our negotiating our, strength our
0: is. Our leverage is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, now on, on customs, Jennifer, the, the EU envisages a, a sort of a customs arrangement that it says will we'll aim to minimise trade barriers, but it's still going to entail rules of origin and all sorts of other kind of border checks and controls. That is inevitable, isn't it? Basically, given given the UK's insistence on leaving the single market and the customs union?
1: Yes, and I think that the EU will really push very strongly to ensure the integrity of their customs union, including on these rules of origin, which mean that you have that an import is, is a certain percentage of local content. For example, if you're, if you're exporting a British car into the EU, you'd have to show that uh, more than 55% of it has been made in the UK and it's not simply ticking on a badge at the at the end of the process that's made in Britain. So I think that the EU will push very strongly for all these elements to be included and to, to maintain the customs mm. union. I've been banging on about this for, for weeks <laughs> in this podcast but um, the EU do have a lot of worries about the UK's ability to maintain the, the customs border checks And we saw last week that the European Commission brought a legal case against the UK for this alleged 2 billion euros worth of fraud on the UK ports, where they say that British customs officers were turning a blind eye to to cheap clothes and shoes coming in from China um, and not collecting the customs duties Hmm. that they should have been. So this is all sort of in the mix as well, that there's an existing mistrust of, of British authorities. And I think that's going to mean that the EU will take a very strong approach on this.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, talking of mistrust, Dan, there's also a demand in this draft document that the UK firmly commit itself to not becoming a low tax, low regulation state that would undercut the EU model. Now, the Commission says this is essential because of the UK's proximity to Europe on the one hand and also the size of its economy. But given the sort of objectives of or some of the objectives of Brexit, is that something that Britain? can
2: can sign up to? Well yes if you take the government at its word that it wants a race to the top not the bottom and I think broadly that is the position that is our preferred mm. state. So I have to say it's a bit rich coming from the EU because the, the most egregious examples of unfair tax competition I've seen in the, in the last few years have been Ireland and Luxembourg <laughs> um, with corporation tax <laughs> and you have to see the amount of tech companies uh, registered in Dublin and Luxembourg to see what impact that can have but I can see why they're nervous and there is a strain of Brexiteer thought that we would love nothing more than for us to be the, sort of the Singapore. Yeah. Um, I think the 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 other backdrop that we've got to, mustn't forget this week is what's going on in the US, um, particularly around the WTO, which hmm. is in real trouble as a as a sort of system of ensuring a. a a backstop of free trade around the world. Um, Donald Trump basically just threw a hand grenade into that system this week with his steel and aluminium tariffs. Mm. Um, we are likely to see rising tit for tat with Europeans responding and the US responding in, in kind, and it, 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 it further undermines the, the the ludicrous notion that we can just sort of walk away with No Deal because that is also predicated on the idea that not only do we can we expect that the current WTO system will be entirely there ready for us yeah. all, all perfectly um, ready to go but also we were hoping to use our newfound independent trading status as a springboard to reform the uh, WTO lead the WTO into services and all these things that we need mm. to fix. Right now that's just, it, it, it's, its it's been less likely to happen at any point in the last 50 years. I mean the idea that you would have a, a new WTO round right now that would bring in services would be laughed at in yeah. every chancellery yeah. a, a ministry across the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, not, Not not a great time to be striking out in the world as a sort of and they know know brussels Uh, know that
2: that's why they've got mm, us
0: over a barrel yeah um now uh jennifer a couple of uh of eu sort of offers and demands um that on the face of it look relatively uncontentious firstly the eu's prepared to offer it says an, an accord on aviation Although it does say there's going to have to be fewer rights for UK airlines in Europe as part of that. Also on education and research, providing there's a specific sort of budget contribution to, it, to those areas. And obviously continued cooperation on foreign policy, defence, security, policing, judicial matters, all that kind of stuff. Now, both sides want all three of those things, don't they really? So it's not going to be too contentious?
1: Well, in theory, yes. And everyone says they want agreements on all of these areas and everyone seems to agree, but as ever with Brexit, it's the old cliche that the devil is in the detail Mm. and we're far from going into the detail yet. So yes, the, the EU wants an agreement on aviation, but it's likely that the well, the UK will no longer be part of the single market. So then British companies will run into problems about EU limits on foreign ownership. For example, mm. IAG, the owner of British Airways will, will be affected here. It will no longer be a, a sort of EU owned company and mm. it will have to um, be subject to stricter rules under, under the EU system. Although on the contrary, the boss of IAG was saying last week, really was that he was very relaxed about what would happen after Brexit. So so i think we will really have to to see how this this all comes out
0: but people like i mean the Ryanair boss michael O'Leary, is 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 very worried mm.
1: yes yeah, so ryanair take a very different view when they're talking about planes being unable to fly and they they're sounding much more worried so but i think we we haven't actually seen what will be in the detail of this agreement which mm. is which is uh, an incredible thing when you think that brexit is is barely 12 months away and we still don't know uh, what the agreement will be on aviation, mm. the, the EU say they want to move forward on that, but but there are still a lot of other steps to to go through before we get there. Mm. Then on some of the other on on education and research, yes, that will also be something that both sides want. But you already hear people in the European Parliament saying, well, the UK should no longer be allowed to get money back through its contribution and research. So at the moment, British universities are actually getting in more money out of the EU research budget than the British government is paying in. Mm. And um, and some people are saying they want an end to that. So that there'll be a very fierce debate over the money and how much right. the UK should contribute in future. And then again, foreign policy, security and defence. Everyone says, of course, we want this to continue in, mm. the, in the best possible way. But then you get into the detail of what does it mean for the UK to be outside EU structures, How can the UK, for example, negotiate its way into sort of key EU um, police databases where you you don't have a precedent of non-EU or non-Schengen member states, for example, being in the Schengen information system, which Mm. is this vast police database with more than 60 million different pieces mm. of information in it all all these and this is just one example and there and there are many yeah. more so all these elements will have to be negotiated and it's a it's a huge task and i think it could be much more contentious in, in, in trying to, to reach an agreement.
0: Then, then it then it looks on the surface, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Dan, you were
2: going to... Well, I was just going to add there is one thing that is emerging as a pretty clear pattern and that's at every point at which we try and roll over a treaty, we end up getting a worse version of it. Um, the aviation agreement with Europe that will be less advantageous than one we've got is mirrored exactly with what we're hearing that the US is, is asking for when we strike a new transatlantic aviation agreement to replace that one. Mm. And it's also exactly the same as the US has been trying with tariff rate quotas on agricultural products Mm. at the WTO, um, where they're basically arguing, well, you know, you're part of a smaller block now, you don't have as much to offer us, we're going to want a bit more. concessions. And and, and the pattern everywhere is all of these agreements that the British government uh, indicated would be entirely rubber stamped, simply replace the words EU with UK and everything will be fine. Every single one of them are, it is a, being a taken degradation for a in They up, know yeah. that we've got yeah. no choice, that we're desperate for these things and they can push us and push us and push mm. us. And they, I don't just mean Europe, the whole world is. You can see us as isolated, a desperate in, yeah. situation yeah. here and they're going to milk it. Mm.
0: OK. Now, there was confirmation in the document also wasn't there that EU's not going to push ahead with any kind of trade talks on any of this until all the commitments that were made in the first phase of the Article 50 talks translated into into sort of legalese and, you know, become a, a legal document, um, including, of course, uh, on avoiding a hard border on the island of uh, of Ireland. Uh, now, I mean, Jennifer, we've been here many, many, many times before, haven't we? But um, that's clearly looking like a immediate and imminent stumbling block still, is it?
1: Yes, I think this will be a key question for this month, in fact, uh, how far the EU were going to really insist on getting the the Irish issue solved sooner rather than later. And again, in, in this draft document, we see the return of the EU's famous anti-backsliding clause, the fact that the UK must respect what's been agreed so far and must make efforts on solving the Irish issue if they are to move forward onto trade talks. And I think at next week's summit of EU leaders will really see how far they intend to put this into practice, whether whether the UK will will be held to this, whether, for example, the UK will be able to get the transition agreement that they're so desperate to get mm. now, um, in, or whether they have to, to really show and sign up to that Irish border option to a full regulatory yes. alignment, which Theresa May has said no government can accept. So I think we are coming to a crunch point in these talks. And we'll really see next week. You know how far the, the EU is ready to hold the government's feet to the fire on. Right.
0: OK. Well, there we have it. The EU's vision then of what the future relationship should look like. And as Dan was saying, it does look pretty much like they have got Britain over a barrel. One very quick question because we're running out of time to both of you just before we wrap up. So when or maybe I should say if we do eventually get to a trade deal, then is this pretty much what it's going to look like? In other words, Dan, you know, how much of a is this draft really how much can the UK expect to be able to modify any of it
2: I don't know there's a lot of ifs in there I mean <laughs> at the moment I still part of me can't see how this can carry on I, I, I politically they the government cannot hide from the country how bad the situation is forever mm-hmm. um, and so I still think that so maybe they get a transition deal maybe it comes at in June instead of April with huge cost to business uncertainty maybe then we get a best a page of warm woolly words to get us through the autumn mm. ratification process and then the real trade talks start after we've left and we've got even less leverage because there were then a third party in yeah. the country and then they don't go on for two years this is probably a five-year process so <laughs> so you're asking me john to yeah, predict what i think will <laughs> happen in 2023 <laughs> i don't think this government will be there in 2023, <laughs>
1: 2023. that's my best, best guess fair enough Je- jennifer well, uh, it, yes. In theory, the the paper version will be, uh, be a free trade agreement plus a, an agreement on security plus an agreement on foreign policy, mm. and that's all there for the taking. But it does depend on on the politics in the UK and whether whether people decide this is this is worth the cost of Brexit, and the EU will play very hard ball on this Mm. because the UK is not Canada it's a big advanced economy on the EU's doorstep and they will ask for for more for more so for for simple trading goods it's a question of of fishing rights as well and uh, I think we are going to get to the crunch point of is this sort of Brexit promised land that were that was offered on the side of the bus to mix the metaphors a bit
0: stark choices well that's it for this week I'm afraid my thanks once again to Dan and Jennifer for joining me if you have any questions any comments any suggestions do please email us as always at brexitpodcast at thegardian.com. we do try and reply to everyone we get please subscribe review on all your favourite podcatchers join the discussion on Twitter you just need to search for Guardian Podcasts till next week then I'm John Henley the producer was Rowan Slaney this was Brexit Means and thank you very much for listening